Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. We are doing a series on mental health and climate change in collaboration with the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Again, thank you for joining us. Carolyn Dumont is the Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. She very kindly joins us to talk about climate change and its effect on human behavior. Today, we're going to talk about heat. It's also important to note that today, as we are recording this, Hurricane Ida is on its way to Louisiana. Whether that heat is coming from natural cycles or from human behaviors, the important point is that those of us who are living have to deal with the greater degrees of heat. Dr. Dumont, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We are talking more and more about heat, and we're not talking the, the inconvenience of a couple hot days. How is medicine and psychiatry, and you as well, concerned with the impact of heat on human behavior, our lifestyles, and so on? Give us some history, please. I have become concerned about the effects of heat on certain populations and in general on our health and well-being. It turns out that heat is thought to be the leading cause of extreme weather-related death and all other extreme weather events combined. Much of this has to do with our exposure to extreme heat and the stress that that puts on our bodies and on our mental health. There have been devastating heat waves. We most recently saw one this year in the Pacific Northwest of our country, which led to hundreds of excess deaths. Many of these deaths are thought to be preventable, and I think that doctors and now psychiatrists are understanding that this is an increasing threat to the well-being of our populations that we care for. Besides climate change, which is, as we know, increasing global temperatures and the frequency and intensity of heat waves, other factors such as an aging population, as well as changes in our environment where more and more people are living in urban areas, which can have amplified heat exposures due to the urban heat island effect, contributing to rising rates of death due to heat. As I was preparing to talk to you, mm -hmm. I remembered that I grew up in a very small, basically, farm town in Ohio. And then I spent a lot of time in New York. I remember hot days in New York City because the concrete got warm. It never cooled down. Where we're living now is also a major variable. And we are so dependent on air conditioning that we're really not in a good cycle here. So many people are moving to the cities. Is that part of our concerns? Absolutely. You bring up a good point about the built environment and how, like I mentioned, the urban heat island effect is affecting our exposure to extreme heat that is just getting absorbed over the course, say, during a heat wave, and that heat builds up in our cities and it radiates out of the concrete, these dark surfaces at night. It contributes to high nighttime temperatures, which are thought really affect people's ability to recuperate and recover from the hot daytime exposures. And those are the vulnerable times, especially for people who may not have access to air conditioning and do rely on a cooler evening to recuperate. That is something that people need to consider for their patients who may not have air conditioning. Some of our people live on the higher stories of older buildings, can be isolated due to their mental illness or just if they're elderly and more homebound. How much are we seeing also changes in behavior? It's not comfortable to not be able to sleep because it's too warm. Heat affects our moods and it affects a 
us physically and mentally. Research shows that people are more cranky and agitated and lethargic with the heat. Certainly important adaptations that we all inherently exhibit to help lower our exposure to heat. People have learned to move out of the heat. If you're hot, you go to a cooler place. You take off layers of clothing, drink a lot of water, and so forth lower your risk of heat-related illness, either heat exhaustion and worst-case scenarios, heat stroke. But there are limits to one's ability to dissipate heat from your body. And certainly thermoregulation, it's a very complex process regulated from our central nervous system to move heat from the inside of our body out to the periphery, vasodilation, increased cardiac output, and then sweating to evaporate that heat from your skin. So Anything that interferes with either the behavioral aspects of letting the heat off of your body or any like medications you might be on or underlying medical illness can certainly interfere with that process and puts people at risk. Do you think mm-hmm. that physicians or the, the medical community is adequately preparing patients when in a heat wave? This is a good question. I'm not really sure. I haven't read about any specifics on research for how aware physicians are and and how much guidelines are helping those of us who are prescribing medications prepare their patients through the course of a heat wave. My sense is that we're really not. I think there's a lot more being published on this topic of extreme heat given what we're seeing with extreme heat with climate change, but I think we're still quite behind. That's actually a very urgent area of research. You've done some work in looking at suicide rates and heat. Can you give us a little overview of that, please? I did look into the literature on the impact of climate change on suicide. One aspect of that, how temperature impacts suicide rates. The heat literature was very broad. There's been a longstanding observation that in the spring and summer, suicide rates tend to rise and then fall in the fall and winter, that could be a multifactorial process that leads to those observations, whether it is directly the heat exposure versus the amount of daylight versus how people are going about their days. A more recent study in 2018, which was quite compelling, showed that when they look more broadly over decades and much larger areas geographically, study was in the U.S. and Mexico, the increasing temperature, let's say one degree Celsius, would lead to 0.7% increase in suicide rates in the U.S. and a 2.1% increase in Mexico. They concluded that this could lead to tens of thousands of excess suicide deaths by 2050. This was a very concerning finding in terms of the real extreme effects of heat exposure on our mood. There's this quality amongst so many people, including professionals, of being just too cavalier about the impact mm-hmm. of heat changes. A friend of mine had the assumption that everyone lives in an air-conditioned house. Right, which we know is not the case. And I probably in Florida, there's many more. Maybe that's when the buildings were built and has to accommodate the need for air conditioning. Sure. But that is not the case for, as we saw this year, in the Pacific Northwest. Washington State or Oregon, a lot of people up there historically not had air conditioning. Some of the most devastating heat waves, honestly, have been in more northern climates in other parts of the world, such as the European heat waves and the really devastating heat wave in Russia. These are more northern climates where people don't have access to air conditioning and aren't acclimated. 
to extreme heat. Those are the very risky aspects of heat. I think more and more people are working on preventing their effects through heat action plans for the cities. We're having these conversations just thinking about our clients and what puts them disproportionately at risk during a heat wave. A lot of this falls along economic and other social risk factors that are, frankly, similar to what we see with COVID-19. Definitely an, an equity issue. One of the things that comes up periodically here in South Florida is that heat, though it not necessarily be the intense wave that we've had this year, but the earth is warming, the ice is melting, mm -hmm. the sea is rising, and a lot of the people who have their homes literally on the beach have been told that in the foreseeable future, their home is going to be underwater. That's a heat-related mm -hmm. change as well that we have got to talk about as public health in some respects, public mental health. Do you feel that medicine is doing enough to help people change their attitudes, change their understandings about this? Are we teaching students enough about this? Just your general opinion on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. There's just so much to take in and think about in these sort of insidious slow-moving processes underlying the more acute events like we're seeing today. The adaptations, the stress that we all endure, some people are much more vulnerable, so we need to consider that. My sense is that we in the medical profession really need to start educating medical students to thinking about these aspects of our patients' well-being, looking at signs and symptoms of the psychological distress that people experience and having guidelines on how to help people either acutely or with just, like I said, these, these insidious stressors that are impacting their lives. And I, I, I really think it's an area that we need to step up on. I know the public health school at Yale is helping. I think that medical school can do more at this point. It's another public health issue. We have to look at the world in which we live. It is. It is. COVID-19 has hopefully been a wake-up call for everybody to think about. It comes out of our natural environment. We're all interconnected, and our health depends on the health of the earth. We're seeing almost, I think, I feel like on a weekly basis, we're reminded this is something that we need to tackle more directly. Dr. Dumont, thank you so much for being with us.